Well, a question for you this morning. Is there something that you are so passionate about that it dominates your prayer life and causes you to use the moments that you have in any given day to plan out your next steps? Is there something that you can't stop thinking about because it breaks your heart? And is there anything that you're praying about and waiting on God to move? Today we'll hear the ancient testimony of Nehemiah. It is the second to last message in this series of ancient testimonies that we have been doing this summer. And as you probably don't need any reminders, as summer is quickly drawing to a close, uh, quite sadly, I'm sure, that uh, this series will also be drawing to a close. But what's interesting, as I look back over this summer and the messages that have been shared, uh, other than the first message on the Apostle John, all the characters in this series were from the Old Testament. Now, we didn't actually plan it that way. In fact, uh, we didn't really plan at all, um, which was probably abundantly obvious to, to most of you. What we did was Pastor Ken and Adam and um, and uh, Quinn and myself, we, we just picked some of the characters whose lives have had an impact in our lives and have, and have spoken to us in some way, or that we, that we came to determine that they, it had a message, that character had a message for our day. And so we primarily scheduled ourselves according to our availability, and this, so the result was that we, we just kind of jumped around the Old Testament then quite a bit. And so this week, as I was thinking about this message and really the historical context in which Nehemiah lived, I realized that we um, somewhat unintentionally did an overview of some of the major events in the history of Israel. And so if I were to go back and rearrange them in some order, we would start with uh, a message on Noah and uh, result. The, um, the fact is that after the, after the creation, there was the fall, and how God used Noah, he showed favor to him to save his people, to, uh, to save a remnant for himself, to save the animals. And then if we skip ahead into the beginning of Exodus, where uh, Moses was called to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt... Uh, they then came into a situation where they had no king. They had these judges, and so there was the message on Deborah, a judge who led powerfully and strategically, who responded to the injustice and oppression in her day. And then there was the message on Gideon, another judge who listened to God when the others didn't. And then there was Solomon. Well, you're wondering maybe, what do you mean Solomon? I don't remember hearing a, a message on Solomon, and you'd be right because that message is actually next week, and Pastor Ken will close um, our series with a message on Solomon. But what's interesting about Solomon is that it was David who passed the, the keys of the kingdom to his son Solomon. And here's the counsel that David gave Solomon. Listen to this carefully. First Kings chapter 2, verse 2 and 3 he says, I am going where everyone on earth must someday go. So if I just pause there, basically David's saying, listen, I'm aware of my own mortality. I'm about to pass away here. So these are final words. And if you, if you pay attention to somebody's final words, you know that they're important and they carry lots of weight. And he says to, to his son, take courage and be a man. I love that. Take courage and be a man. And then he says this very specifically. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways 
Keep the decrees, commands, regulations, and laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do and wherever you go. And Solomon, as you may remember, started out well, but he eventually, he, he willfully disobeyed this wise counsel of his father, the clear command of God. He did go ahead and marry foreign women, even though it was uh, stated explicitly that they shouldn't. And the reason for that was that, that God knew that that wasn't the best for him, that, that those foreign women would turn his heart away from the one true God and to follow their gods. And the result was a divided kingdom, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And so God sends prophets. The prophet Elijah, he, he was sent to go and call the people back. And then last week I looked at Elisha, who, who was called by God, and Elijah came and put the mantle on him to signify this calling. He was then mentored by Elijah, and he followed in the footsteps of Elijah, continually calling the people back. To worship the one true God. But the people didn't listen to the prophets. And in 722 BC, God had the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom. And then in 586 BC, the same fate happens to the south as the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar invade Jerusalem. This event is described in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 19, where we read, They, that is, the Babylonians, set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. Take note of that. That's what happened. They demolished the temple. They wiped out the the walls of Jerusalem. They burned all of the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. So they just came in and completely decimated uh, Jerusalem. And those that weren't killed during the invasion were led then as captives 800 miles away to Babylon. Daniel was one of those sent in exile. And he served under King Nebuchadnezzar. And you may recall, and if you haven't, I encourage you to go back and listen to Pastor Quinn's message on being a person of character and how we can then uh, make a difference for God by the character that, that we demonstrate even when we're in difficult situations. And so the situation wasn't good. The people in Israel are 800 miles away from from their home, their, their temple is destroyed, the walls are in ruins, uh, they're a broken, defeated, people held in captive. It wasn't good, but there was hope, because it didn't last forever. Now, to them it would have seemed like forever, because it wasn't until 539 BC that the Babylonians got routed by the Medo-Persian Empire. And this was God's plan as he was providing a way for the people to return home. And so one of the first things that Cyrus, king of Persia, does in response to the Lord moving in his heart, he makes this pro- proclamation. And this is what he says in Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 23. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go there for this task, and may the Lord your God be with you. And so then there were several waves of returnees to Jerusalem over the next 80 or 90 years. And now, late 446 B.C., some pick it at 445 
they, we, we, is when Nehemiah enters the, the historical story. Nehemiah covers some of the final events of the, of the Old Testament, or sorry, of the Old, of the Old Testament. And he's a fascinating character, an ordinary person whom God uses for extraordinary purposes. He wasn't called as a prophet, but his ministry and his leadership resembled that of the prophets. He declares to the people what God has revealed to him. He prays for the people. He calls them to return to God. So he has the same message of returning to the one true God. He addresses social issues like a prophet would, head on and strongly. But he's not really considered a prophet. In fact, he was a visionary servant leader, widely considered to be a man of outstanding character, a person of integrity and honesty, courageous. One resource that I read listed 20 character attributes of Nehemiah. And if we were to study the entire book of Nehemiah, I, would believe, I believe that we would discover those all to be true. They're all good reasons for us to consider him today. But what I want to share with you this morning is what stands out to me, and that is that he was a man of passion, that he was a man of prayer, and that he was a man who planned. But first, what do we know about Nehemiah? Let me introduce him to you a little bit more. We know that in chapter 1 and verse 1, he's introduced for the first time as Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. His name means, my comfort is Yahweh. I like that. My comfort is Yahweh. It's so fitting to him. I mean, how did his parents know that God, the Lord, would be his comfort? But that is his name. His father, Hakalia, appears only here. No mention of him anywhere else in the Bible. So again, I just draw that out because these, again, are just average people, ordinary people. We discover that this was uh, in verse 1 again of chapter 1, that it's the month of Kislev, which if you're comparing it to a modern calendar, it's probably late November, early December. But it specifically says that it was in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. So it is about 446 BC. He says, I was in the capital of Susa, which was the then, uh, or sorry, he was in the citadel of Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire. And this is at least now 800 miles away from Jerusalem. And he introduces himself at the end of chapter 1 as I was cupbearer to the king. Doesn't sound um, all that significant because really, well, what did he do? He carried the cups for the king. Sounds pretty easy, right? Pretty straightforward. Well, not so fast. You see, he drank what was in the cups and he ate what was on the plates. And if there was something in the drink or in the food, right? Goodbye, Nehemiah. Long live the king, right? It was a great job for a risk taker who liked to eat and drink. Actually, it was a, quite a prestigious role. And I believe God placed Nehemiah there strategically to be in a position to influence a godless king. Because if you think about it, there was no one closer to the king other than the king's wife than the king's cupbearer, Nehemiah. So let's see how this unfolds. Let's consider these three things about Nehemiah. The first, Nehemiah was a man of passion. Nehemiah was passionate about two things, God's place and God's people. 
One of Nehemiah's brothers, Hanani, comes and visits him and tells him that the wall around the city of Jerusalem is still lying in ruins. It was still a total mess. Now, that's why I set the context by giving you a little bit of history. I know most of us find history incredibly boring, but there are things about it that are fascinating because it places us in in the history of of humanity. It places these events, in, in, in a sense, in real time. We're only separated by them uh, from in time and, and space. But the Babylonians, remember, they came in and they just completely wiped out the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. For 140 years, the place was a disaster. But it wasn't the physical condition of the wall that mattered to Nehemiah. You see, the wall was simply reflective of the spiritual condition of God's people. It wasn't about the broken walls, but about the broken people. And his brother reported this. He says, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah, stating the obvious. He says, they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now think of the words that Nehemiah heard here. He maybe didn't hear anything in between. He just heard trouble, disgrace, broken down, burned. And Nehemiah was so burdened by this news, his heart is absolutely broken, that he sat down and wept. He has this emotional reaction because he cared so much. He was passionate about his relationship with God, and he wanted this for the people of Israel as well. His weeping revealed the depth of his passion and his heart of compassion. You see, passion and compassion are usually connected because when you are passionate about something, it's easy to get involved and do something about what you're passionate about. And I believe it was at this moment that God gave Nehemiah a vision, that it was inspired by a passion for God's people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. Not because he cared about the wall itself, but because doing that would lead to the restoration of the people of God. He was passionate about the spiritual condition of God's people. How passionate was he about this? He goes on to say that he mourned over this news. I mean, he literally grieved the spiritual condition of God's people. The principle is this. A great move of God is directly related to the passion of his people. Because it is God who places the passion in our hearts. It is God who calls, who gives us something to do, who gives us the passion to do it. Whatever that do it is. But missionaries and church planters and pastors, they know this because they're burdened with a passion to see lost people come to Jesus and people who have been found growing in their relationship with Jesus. We can look at many examples throughout history. Let me give you a couple. William Booth, who you may know as the founder of the Salvation Army. He had a passion for the homeless. And one morning, near the turn of the 20th century, his son Bramwell visited his elderly father. And in the morning, the elder Booth, William, he didn't even say good morning to his son. He just launched at him and said, Bramwell, he cried. 
Did you know that men slept out all night on the bridges? He had arrived in London very late the night before from some time in the south of England, and he had to cross over to the, to the north side to reach his home. And what he had seen on that midnight return accounted for this fiery response. Did he know that men slept out on the bridges at night? Well, yes, Bramwell replied. A lot of poor fellows, I suppose, do that. To which his father replied, Then you ought to be ashamed of yourself to have known it and to not have done or and to have done nothing for them. Done nothing for them. The result was homeless shelters created by the Salvation Army. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, he despaired for the millions of Chinese who were dying without the hope of the gospel. And Hudson was troubled that people in England seemed to have little interest in China. So he wrote a little book called China, Its Spiritual Need and Claims. In one passage he scolded, Can all the Christians in England sit still with full... I wish I had an English accent to read this. Can all the Christians in England sit still with folded arms? In other words, in total comfort while these multitudes in China are perishing, perishing for lack of knowledge, for lack of that knowledge which England possesses so richly. He goes on to write, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus China and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time, even life itself must be secondary. Do you think Hudson Taylor was passionate about taking the gospel to China? Even life itself must be secondary. Jim Elliot believed that. He famously wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were killed by a tribe in Ecuador that they were trying to reach with the gospel. And there are countless other examples of people who were absolutely passionate about their calling. Makes me think of my own passions. Makes me wonder... What moves me to tears? Not because of my circumstances, but because of the spiritual conditions of God's people. Because of injustice. Because of racism. These are the things that break the heart of God. To break our hearts. I pray that we would learn, and not even learn, it's not a... It's not something we learn, but that we would cry about the right things. That we would cry and lament over our family and our friends and our neighbors who don't know Jesus. That we would cry over the very things that break the heart of God. Nehemiah was a man of great passion. Heartbroken over the spiritual condition of God's people. Moved to do something about it. So he prays. 
Nehemiah was a man of prayer. First thing he did. His mourning now over the spiritual condition, it was mixed with fasting and prayer. In verse 4 he says, he fasted and prayed. That is, he gave up food for the specific purpose of praying, of seeking God's face. The time that he would normally spend eating and giving up that, that, that sort of physiological need to meet a spiritual need. That's what he did. And he prayed to the Lord, the God of heaven. Nehemiah knew that if the walls were going to be rebuilt, it would only be because God moved and made it possible. On his own, Nehemiah Nehemiah could do nothing, and he absolutely knew it. And so he prayed. The text says that he prayed for some days. Well, the time between chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1, is about three to four months. Now, looking ahead, the wall ended up being rebuilt in only 52 days. I always think there's something significant in that because basically he prayed for twice as long as it took to rebuild the actual walls. He prayed for more longer than it took to actually do the work. Think about quickly how he prayed. And, and, and you know, when the disciples came to Jesus, said, teach us how to pray. And, and he kind of gave them a pattern. And that's all this is. It's just a bit of a pattern to organize our prayer at times. And he starts with adoration in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. He says, the great and awesome God. First reference. Then he says, who keeps his covenant of love. That is, he's a promise-keeping God. He's a faithful-keeping God. With those who love him and keep his commands. That's who he's faithful. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. Why? Because he believed that God was a God who listened and a God who responded and spoke. And so he sees in this the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the holiness of God. And so he comes to a time of confession. Verses 6 and 7, he says, I confess the sins, we Israelites. I like that. He doesn't point fingers. He acknowledges and includes himself. He even says, including myself. And so he makes absolutely no excuses. He just is very clear. He says, we have sinned against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. How? What did they do? He says, we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses, which is exactly what David repeated when he passed the keys of the kingdom to Solomon, his son. And it was repeated over and over. God's people, this is what you should do. If you don't do it, you suffer the consequences. And he recognizes that. That the reason there was the, the, the walls were in, 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 in a total ruin was because of their sin. So he confesses their sin. And he knew then, I believe, what we know now is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and willing and able to forgive us our sins. When we know through confession the forgiveness of God, Our only right response is thanksgiving. And so verses 8 and 10, Nehemiah remembers God's promises, even if those promises are about what will happen if they're unfaithful. But Nehemiah knows that's exactly what happened. And so he expresses his thanks because he knows God is faithful and he's good. And then the S is for supplication, which just simply means a request. And what did Nehemiah ask for? Well, 
he specifically asks for favor from the king. His request was bold and specific. He says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Lately, I have to admit to you that I've been convicted that my prayers right now in this season need to be bolder, need to be more specific, and absolutely rooted in the belief that God is able to do more than all we ask or even imagine, especially as it relates to the coronavirus. What if we prayed specifically, God, please have mercy. Put an end to the coronavirus. Do we believe that God has the power to stop the coronavirus? If we believe that, then we should pray that. Now, I know if we had the opportunity to share about answered prayer, we could all stand up and give countless testimonies of answered prayer. But all my prayer is that we would become a people of prayer. Because what might happen if we became passionate about the right things? If we became passionate about prayer? Friends, if that's your heart's desire, I'm just going to redirect you to to a resource that's on the website. There's podcasts there. There's video of a class that Pastor Adam taught this spring, right when the coronavirus launched, on becoming a people of prayer. None of us are perfect. We're We're all in this journey where we're learning and discovering. And if that's your heart's desire this morning, just sit down. Sit down with your spouse or sit down with a friend and watch, watch and listen or do whatever is easiest for you. But take some time to think about how God might want to move you along in this season in prayer. But one of the things that I wonder about and pray about is could God use our current situation with the coronavirus to start a revival? And we don't talk much about revival. There's been some significant revivals in history where where God's people (laughs) turn back to God in such a significant way that it had a huge impact on all the people around them. Now, I know I need more time to flesh this out, but every before every true revival, there needs to be a humbling of God's people to face the sin that brought about the wreckage and the carnage. And tears. That takes me to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where we read, And these are God's words to us. If my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. When God's people, not secular people, not people who are far from God, but when God's people humble themselves and pray and seek God and turn from their sinful ways. Nehemiah was passionate about spiritual things, and so he prayed. His spiritual relationship with God was vital, and so prayer was the first thing he did. But Nehemiah was also a man who planned. In chapter 2 now, we see God moving And I believe that this is in direct response to Nehemiah's passion and his prayer. It's a clear answer to prayer. Today has finally come. Remember his prayer? He says, give your servant success 
today by granting him favor in the presence of God of this man. And, and this today prayer was something that he prayed every day for three to four months. And on this day, he can no longer hide his sadness. His broken heart is now visible. He's totally exposed. And so the king asks him, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. You see, he he recognized how discouraged Nehemiah looked. And the king read the situation to a T. He nailed it. Nehemiah wasn't sick. In fact, if he was sick, that would be a problem, right? Because the question would then be, was the drink or food that made him sick? Because if it is, then the king better not eat or drink what was on the plate or in the cup. Anyway, the king gives Nehemiah the opportunity that he has been praying for and I believe planning for. Because the king wants to know what's wrong. And I love Nehemiah's honesty here. At the end of verse 2, if you're following along in your Bibles in chapter 2, he says, I was very much afraid. Again, think ordinary human with real honest emotions. It's real. Parents, kids, some of you stepping into this week, you might even honestly say, I am very much afraid. But Nehemiah is afraid because he knows that this is the very moment that he's been praying for, and he doesn't want to blow it. I so appreciate then the but at the beginning of verse 3. He says, I was very much afraid, but I said. In other words, he acted in spite of his fear. And this reminds us that bravery isn't the absence of fear, but the willingness to act in spite of it. And so Nehemiah explains his sadness, and of course, his sadness is because of the mess in Jerusalem. In verse 4, the king asks, what is it you want? What is it you want? What an invitation. God is moving, and Nehemiah knows it. This is the very moment he's been praying for for four months. He's been planning for this very moment. And so he says a little bullet prayer. It's like, oh God, here we go. Help me. But he knows exactly what to ask for. He doesn't make it up. He's planned for this. He's probably rehearsed this speech numerous times. And he goes on to list exactly what he needs. And he asks for a leave of absence given. He asks for letters. One for safe passage and another one for the supplies that he'll need. He is acknowledged. He goes, I need wood. I need timber for the gates, the wall, and even my own house. I mean, he thought of every little detail, didn't he? How? Because he planned. It wasn't just flying by the seat of his pants, making it up as he went along. And for those months that he prayed, he was planning, thinking, if I'm given the opportunity to ask the king for help, what am I going to ask for? And so he gets all of what he asks for and more because the king even sends with him army officers and cavalry, an armed escort. Who needs a letter for safe passage when you've got the king's army with you? And here we catch a glimpse of Nehemiah's humility and his faith. He doesn't take credit for his success. He doesn't say, man, I'm a genius. Look at what I just managed to get. I'm so glad that I thought all that out and made that wish list, which is true. He did plan, 
But he's very quick to point out that he was successful that day because of the gracious hand of my God was on me. Think about that. Because of the gracious hand of my God was on me. And when we're faced with a challenge, we're tempted, I believe, to quickly take matters into our own hands. We don't like to wait, but there's nothing worse than getting ahead of God. At our staff day of prayer this past week, one of the staff shared how she was challenged to pray first. Because you know what? It's just so easy to jump in into a situation, problem solve, come up with the next steps, plan it all out. But if we do that before praying, we'll probably miss the opportunity that God will ultimately present to us, which I believe means that we would miss out on God's best. So let me close by just asking this. Is there anything in your life right now that isn't the way you want it to be? There's something just a little messed up. Maybe it's something in your spiritual life. Maybe there's something that you're really passionate about. Someone you love that doesn't know Jesus yet. Can I suggest that you start by praying about that very situation? And as you pray, you can start to organize and plan and some next steps, but don't do any of that until you see God is on the move. Because he will. Wait on him to move. Because when he does, it will be unmistakable. This makes me think of Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As Jolene was leading us in worship this morning, and she read that prayer from A.W. Tozer and then prayed her own heartfelt prayer. As I was listening to those words, I'm like, oh man, God, you're too good because she didn't know what my message was about and I didn't know what that prayer was about. And that prayer is really about coming before God and saying, stir in my heart a passion and a yearning for the things of God that will be unmistakable to a watching world. Oh, may God offer that grace to us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would so move in our midst that we would take, in a sense, even a moral inventory this morning. That we would look at our lives and where they are out of alignment with your will. That we would hear your sweet, gentle, quiet whisper to return to you today. Maybe we've been off wandering, doing our own thing, paying little attention to what you have for us. But oh God, draw us back to you. Help us to be passionate about the right things. And Father, the tears that may come, may they come as an expression of your work in our lives. Father, move us to become a people of prayer. And Father, help us to surrender all of our plans to you, knowing that you have our best in mind and you will bring about what it is that you said you will do. In Jesus' name we pray.